Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I am Nicole Kabilis. Today's episode is about an autistic person's relationship to food. We're going to talk about autistic picky eaters, diets that people with autism adopt, autistic food relationships with social gatherings, the vagus nerve's impact on food relationships, the relationship between autism and eating disorders, and support for autistic people on their relationship with food. There are way more articles about autistic children being picky eaters and very few about teens and adults with autism struggling with picky eating. Though articles about children with autism being picky eaters has great info, giving a spotlight to autistic adults discussing their struggles with food is insightful. Take an approach that is about understanding why picky eating occurs, and more importantly, why picky eating is something that a lot of people with autism don't grow out of in adulthood. Okay, so then it goes into uh, what really causes picky eating. This is coming from an article, Picky Eating and Autism, by the Autism Community in Action, and they list several causes. Um, Number one, sensory defensiveness, tastes, smell, textures of food, for example, causes discomfort, uh, the need for routine and sameness, wanting the same food at the same time every day, presenting the food exactly the same creates a locus of control, a visual overstimulation, having too much food on the plate, for example, delayed oral motor function, aversion to textures, gagging on food, struggles with chewing and swallowing, and then we have physical disorders, right? So we have the mitochondrial disorder, mitochondria not working properly to digest the food, and then a chronic immune symptom disease is eosinophilic esophagitis. Say that 10 times twice. <laughs> this is inflation caused by white blood cells attacking the esophagus, which basically makes things hard to swallow. And then, of course, we have the, the pain of, of eating, leading to constipation, tooth pain, maybe acid reflux, painful gas, indigestion, etc. Okay, we also have the overgrowth of candida, the increase of craving for grains, carbs, and sweets due to increased fungus in the GI tract, undiagnosed food allergy or food sensitivity, and addiction to processed foods. In our previous episode, we talked about autism and emetophobia, which is the fear of vomiting. And I personally think that a lot of these traits that are related to autism and picky eating can definitely cause a phobia related to eating food or throwing up food. Um, So I think that this is a really good resource in conjunction with our previous episode. Mm -hmm. Moving forward, Danny Raid, the founder of Asperger's Experts, shared his personal experience with picky eating in an article on the organization's website. And he said that his struggles came from a lack of trust in his ability to handle or cope with the new flavors and sensations. Now, I do want to clarify that Danny Raid is in his early 30s, and I think he has a lot more perspective on why those issues came up looking back rather Mm -hmm. than being aware in the moment as a child that those things were coming up. Yeah, that makes Um, sense. He also says an autistic person's experience with food is about control. In a world that is unpredictably scary and overstimulating, food is one of those things that a person has control over not to create overwhelm. 
And I think that this is also really similar to how other people, whether autistic or not, struggle with eating disorders. When there's a feeling of loss of control, food is a vessel for creating that security around control. And that can create mm -hmm. a lot of dysfunctional relationships with food and eating. Mm -hmm. And um, this can cause a person with autism to have a heavily restricted diet on their terms. There's a disconnect between what a neurotypical parent thinks tastes good and what the autistic child thinks tastes good. Neurotypical people have a different degree of trust with food than autistic people. So being told to just trust a food item that can create sensory overwhelm puts people with autism on the defensive. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I do want to go back to um, two episodes ago, we talked about autism and phobias. And one of the things we discussed is that a lot of well-intentioned neurotypical parents or caregivers will just tell the person with autism or the person with the phobia, oh, just you know, suck it up, tough it out, deal with it, and you'll right. overcome the struggle. And right. so I think that a lot of neurotypical parents handle the interaction with food the same way. And, you know, I mean, even with neurotypical kids that are picky eaters at a young age, you know, I think we, we really try to push the agenda of, oh, just try it and you'll like it. And it's really tough. Um, and I also think that, you know, when I think back to my experience around healthy eating, my motivation to eat healthy had a lot to do with my understanding of what healthy eating was. But when you're a kid, you're not thinking about the perspective of what is good for your body and not good for your body. You're just oh, eating food on the basis of what tastes good, what mm -hmm. feels good, what feels comfortable in the mouth. Right. And so the goals of a, a neurotypical adult and a neurotypical child or an autistic child are very different when it comes to food. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think forcing that person to eat the food is good. And, and I can't tell you how many videos I've seen or how many people I've talked to where that force feeding of a sensory discomfort food causes vomiting. And, you know, that's not fun for a parent to deal with. Yeah. Um, so when a neurotypical caregiver often force children with autism into overstimulating situations, you know, such as an example with eating food, then food becomes a source of control that the child mm -hmm. with autism has on their terms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, growing up, a lot of people with autism, when they're kids, they, they really feel like they don't have a lot of control in their lives. So they develop these coping mechanisms of ways that they can control and manipulate things that ultimately are done to accommodate their neurodiversity and their sensory challenges, whether or not mm -hmm. that's healthy, but it, it remedies that feeling of powerlessness of just constantly being forced into a world that is just not built for us. Yeah. A person should explore food and even play with it as a way to create a beneficial sensory relationship with it. At least that's what Danny Reid believes. There are occupational therapists that actually specialize in supporting the autistic exploration with food. And the way Danny describes it is rather than putting it in your mouth. So, you know, for a person with autism, it's just too dangerous to, you know, put the food in your mouth, chew it, deal with all those sensory challenges and swallow it. And any yeah. sort of sensory discomfort, whether that's smell, taste, texture, I don't know, the sound of it in your ears mm -hmm. when you're chewing, you know, 
if there's an uncomfortable sensation that creates triggers in your body that you shouldn't eat that food and that if you do, you should dispel of it quickly, such as, you know, throwing it up or their stomach pain. Um, and, you know, again, this is not necessarily because the food is bad, but if you think about it from a neurotypical perspective, the same issues come up if you're eating food that is expired, that smells gross. Um, maybe you're eating fruit that's a little too mushy. I, for me, a really great example is I hate overripe bananas. Um, mm. You know, so so those sensory cues are really important for our body to determine what food is safe and what is healthy for us. Um, but again, you know, that perspective of understanding what that looks like is so different between the neurotypical and the neurodiverse nervous system. Try saying that three times fast. I know, exactly. <laughs> um, and so what these occupational therapists will do is, again, breaking down food to its um, rudimentary sensory experiences. So rather mm. than putting it in your mouth, what is it like to hold the food? What mm. is it like to feel the food in between your fingers? What is it like to smell it? And going slow with it. So it, so the ultimate goal isn't necessarily about putting the food in your mouth and swallowing it. It's really about, you know, what is your relationship to this food? Are you ready to eat it? You know, mm -hmm. very similar to exposure therapy uh, when overcoming a phobia. One thing that um, Danny Raid had talked about, not necessarily in the article I'm referencing, but I think it's another article where he said that one of the ways he overcame his issues with food is he'd learned to cook the food. Mm. And a lot of that had to do with watching food network shows. Sure. And one of the things that alleviated his anxiety around food was to cook it and not necessarily eat it. Uh, sometimes he would throw the food away and yes, that sounds very wasteful, but mm. for him, it's this low risk, safe way to interact with food, to smell it, to cut it up. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so, so it's, it's a, it's kind of an observational exploration of food rather than, you know, an interactive piece. And so for him, that, that made a really big difference for being comfortable with food, being comfortable with exploring different types of food. And yeah, I think sense. he and his parents would probably agree that, you know, you do what you can to build your window of tolerance when it comes to trying different types of food. And your relationship to food. I mean, obviously, in that situation, he's building a relationship with food. He is creating it. He is chopping it. He is in the food prep part of it. And so that is building um, his own relationship with food mm -hmm. and I as think opposed that, to being served it, right? I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, totally. And I do think that the our our human relationship with food is so significantly underrated. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think about our relationship with food based on convenience, based on taste, oh, you know, and, and our relationship to food is not always driven on the basics of health. There's always some emotional component. I mean, food plays such a big role on emotional relief. And I think that when parents are trying to build healthy eating habits for their kids, they're not thinking about what is the child's desire to have a relationship with food and no, what's the parent's that, yeah. relationship with food and how is that relationship being projected onto the child? Right. You know, I don't know if you have a response to that as a parent yourself. 
Oh, we'll talk about that when uh, later on in the yeah, interview. yeah. I'll and I'll talk about my experience with that as well. But yeah, continuing sure. on, so Cassandra Crosman, an autistic blogger on in the loop about neurodiversity, stated in 2019 that people with autism are sensory eaters, not picky eaters. This means that an autistic person's interaction with food is an elevated sensory experience, often an uncomfortable one. It's important that food is eaten and interacted with in a way that is sensory friendly, which again, we talked about occupational therapists can support with that. And then Patrick Dwyer, an autistic adult that runs the blog Autistic Scholar, said that his body would have so much discomfort with sensory experiences in food that he would anticipate and seek out every single minor discomfort in food just to reject it. This is similar to having an anxiety disorder or even a phobia. When you anticipate that something bad or scary will happen to you, that is all you will focus on instead of seeking out the positives or the benefits of that experience. And I do think it's important that when a child develops a relationship with food, autonomy is so important. You know, it's one thing if the parent is spreading those thin, trying to create, you know, meals for for them, meals for the child, Um, rather than saying, hey, child, if you're really wanting this type of food, why don't I teach you the skills to create your own meals? So then Mm -hmm. there isn't this tense relationship between um, the child and the parent about what the child wants to eat versus the projection of of what the adult wants them to eat. And that certainly doesn't mean that autistic people will never eat, you know, healthy things, but that's why food can feel so restrictive. It's that need for control um, so that Mm -hmm. they are not Mm -hmm. feeling powerless to constantly being forced to experience overwhelm, especially when it comes to eating food. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I'm going to talk about this later, but one thing that helped my child with autism is providing choice, right? You have a, a, a series of things in front of you on your plate. What do you choose to eat? How do you choose to eat it, right? So then there's there's some um, autonomy there. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing to think about. Okay. So another thing to think about, and this is something that we neurotypical people can overlook very easily, is that the environment can have its own impact on picky eating. So Imagine that we're going to a restaurant and that everybody does this. So we go out, we take our kids to the restaurant, but then we're not, we're not thinking about um, maybe the environmental experience of that restaurant. Is it loud? Is it lots of people? Um, is the sitting area uncomfortable? Um, and that also, that sensory overwhelm can build into um, that experience. It'll build into that experience that they have with eating food. Um, another Can I thing add is, something to that? You get it. Go for it. Yeah. So if your body is in a chronic state of stress, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there's such a strong relationship between the amygdala and different parts of the brain that process stress and anxiety, and it has mm-hmm. a direct correlation to the digestive system. So it totally makes sense that when you're in an environment with loud music, lots of people and uncomfortable mm-hmm. seating and, and your body is tense. Yes. then of course you're going to create a you're going to feel a lot of digestional discomfort and that's just going to lead to anxiety about you know mm-hmm. oh my god like am i sick am i going to have right. to you know throw up in the bathroom or have diarrhea and 
sure. you know, and then it leads to, you know, leaving. And so that, mm-hmm. that can play a role, even if the food is really not problematic for that person with autism. Right. And then, you know, or even on the mild, mildest side of things, right? You're just uncomfortable. You're not having a good time and you're not going to eat a lot. Right. And then you associate going out with those, those feelings again, if this happens over and over again. So, you know, right. taking your child out to um, a favorite spot, Casa Bonita, maybe not a good thing. <laughs> so it's well, just and think sensory about, overwhelm. You know, I was thinking about how all of those things can perpetuate masking. You know, sure. if you're autistic Absolutely. and you're a picky eater, but you're going out on a date and you don't mm-hmm. want your date to be weirded mm. out by what you're doing, you right. force yourself to eat things to give an impression of who you are. And I will say this, you know, as somebody who is an autistic health nut, you know, sometimes I do pay attention to what the other person orders because, you mm. know, what a person orders says a lot about how they care for their body, what their personality is like. And sure. so that's kind of that other layer of pressure of sort of being inauthentic to the needs of our body as a way mm-hmm. to present a certain impression to right. other people because that that masking of eating mm-hmm. is a way to gain social currency with friends, with the date, with family. And mm-hmm. it sucks. It really yeah. sucks. And that, that goes into um, other environmental factors, right? The stress and, and anxiety of socializing with people while eating. You could be at a birthday party or on a date, like you're saying, at a wedding or workplace happy hour where you feel compelled that you have to fit in, right? This can create discomfort, um, embarrassment about not eating at all or eating something that looks like it came off a child's menu can also impact that. Yeah. Okay. So, go ahead. Uh, so when I was doing research for this um, podcast episode, one of the articles I referenced was written by Haley Moss, who Mm -hmm. is an autistic lawyer in Florida. And one of the things she said was that she really struggled with birthday parties. She Mm. loved cake. She hated pizza. She hated like, she hated all the lunch food. Now, granted, like, I'm not a fan of pizza either, just because it's not healthy. Um, but you know, it's so interesting to, to hear about a child who just like, can't stand the the texture and feeling of pizza. So she said what her parents did to help her cope with that is she would eat food ahead of time, whether that be, you know, take out from a restaurant that she prefers or her parents would pack a lunch. Um, and so she just wouldn't eat the food. And, and she also said that because she loved cake so much, cake was her reward for having to mask her autism at oh, these yeah. birthday parties, having to deal with the sensory onslaught of whatever the location is. Sure. And so it, it was fascinating for me to read that. I don't personally have that relationship with food, mm-hmm. but to see food as a reward for overcoming struggles, you know, I think on the one hand, like if you look at it positively, I guess good for you for finding motivation to endure it and show up and and not uh, engage in social interactions. But on the yeah. other hand, you know, if you're using food as a codependent relationship, that creates a binge eating problem. Yeah. Um, you know, food shouldn't be used consistently as a reward for, you know, overcoming a chronically stressful 
situation that causes anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I have a lot of interesting thoughts and concerns about that. But, you know, at the same time, I think for for Haley to bring that up, if if that really helped her to get through life, I think that's awesome. Yeah. And we all do that, right? Yeah. Okay. So um, we've come to the end of that. So now we talk about our own experiences. So Nicole, what do can you relate to any of these issues with picky mm-hmm. eating? I talked a lot in our previous episode that I had a lot of sensory defensiveness, but that was more related to my fear of vomiting. And, um, and I, to summarize, I had the fear of vomiting and it was caused by chronic nosebleeds and the nosebleeds created kind of uncomfortable, uh, swallowing and spitting up. Mm -hmm, And even mm -hmm. though I never threw up. And so I, I, my fear of vomiting wasn't directly impacted by food per se, Mm. but of course, when you have a fear of vomiting that escalates your fear of food. Yeah. And so for me, if the food had an unpleasant taste, smell, or texture, Mm -hmm. it would trigger my fear of throwing up or Mm. making me suspicious of expired food, causing food poisoning. So for me personally, I wasn't heavily restrictive with my diet but I was very perfectionist when it came to food. And, and I would drive my mom nuts by constantly asking, you know, is this food good? Is it expired? Or, mm-hmm. you know, with berries, like strawberries in particular, they go bad so fast. And yeah. so my mom would be like, oh, they're fine. I bought them yesterday and then I pick them up and they've got white mold all over sure. it. And so, right. um, yeah, so I think sometimes I would waste food because I would just have so much anxiety and I didn't trust it. But again, it was from the perspective of, is this going to make me throw up rather Mm. than the food itself creating sensory discomfort? Mm -hmm. Um, To this day, I still get really freaked out by moldy food when I'm dealing with, you know, throwing food away out of the fridge or, um, I don't know, sometimes when you're, what do you call it? Your garbage disposal is clogged. Yeah. I, I just get so uncomfortable interacting with those things because I, I don't know if it's that I witness people who get a gag reflex from those things and it makes me concerned or if the sensory problems themselves create a gag reflex, but I have to wear gloves. And mm. sometimes I even wear a mask because I just don't want to think about or get anxiety about those things as I'm interacting with them. And so, um, yeah, as I said, I had a, a just a ton of control issues around knowing mm. when food expired. Mm. Um, my parents rarely cooked and ate out a lot. And so one of the problems, as I said before, I would constantly ask my parents if food had expired. And mm. they're like, Nicole, you're overthinking it. You know, mm. it, it's getting annoying when you keep asking these questions. But as I got older, and my parents would buy groceries. They'd never eat the groceries because they ate out a lot. So they would mm. be, you know, they would give me all of their extra food. So what I learned to do is I would check the expiration date. And <laughs> yeah, some exactly. of the things they would give me were like a year old. Mm. And so so I'm at a point where I, I actually really don't trust any food my parents give me because okay. I don't think they look at an expiration sure. date Apparently and not. a year old. Yeah. Like it's, dis- I'm just in disbelief. Like, why would you give this to me and not even check? 
Yeah. So I got into the habit of not trusting any food from my parents, rightfully so. Mm -hmm. um, and so it wasn't to the point where those concerns narrowed my food preferences. I still ate a wide range of food, but I would panic if I ate something that didn't taste right or sit right. Right, right. Um, sometimes leftovers, especially frozen leftovers, triggered my sensory issues. Um, mm. Any frozen food that absorbs a lot of water, like potatoes or Brussels sprouts, mm -hmm. uh, really impacts the texture of the food. And I just, I and I love Brussels sprouts, but yeah. frozen Brussels sprouts, it's like okay. you take a bite in it. It's just super watery and like yeah. cold and hard to chew. And sure. it, it like kind of creeps me out just even talking about it. Right. And it's um, Brussels sprouts. So yeah, <laughs> no, I actually really love Brussels sprouts. Okay. Um, so, you know, se sensory defensiveness definitely created some issues with cooking food, especially meat. Uh, I'm not vegetarian, but there have been times in the past. And, and I would say even today that I'm just really uncomfortable working with raw meat. Mm. Um, but I will eat cooked meat. I do eat sushi. There was a point in my life where I completely avoided eating sushi because of the fear okay. of, will right. I get sick if I eat sure. raw meat? Um, but yeah, when it comes to cooking raw meat, um, I, I actually do fairly okay with dark meat like beef. And mm -hmm. if it's ground, I'm fine with it. I Chicken mm -hmm. is so, I hate working with raw chicken. Okay. And I hate like, cutting the fat off the chicken. Mm. So usually my, my husband is the one that will do it. Or like in the past, if I cook chicken, um, I try to buy certain types of chicken where sure. eh, it, it's just not a lot of chicken to work with, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, so yeah. So I don't know if it's something I've overcome. I, I think it's just when my husband and I moved in together and he loves cooking, I'm like, all mm -hmm. right, <laughs> You're I don't have to chicken. deal with this anymore. Yeah, so it's fine. No, that's um, great though. Yeah. Working yeah, together. So, that's good. Um, I don't have any issue with routine and sameness in my daily food routine. Mm -hmm. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm ironically very picky about not wasting food and the expiration date of food. Um, and so I, I don't know, like I feel a lot of guilt if I waste food, but I'm not mm -hmm. going to push my body to eat food that isn't good for it. So right. It just comes down to like, you know, a healthy amount of hypervigilance of like when something's going to expire and just make sure. sure that you eat your leftovers, eat your produce before it goes bad. Right. Um, so I'm not super picky about food being pre prepared the same way. I think like most people, I have preferences. I like sauteed vegetables over steamed vegetables. Some steamed vegetables are fine, but I just don't like vegetables that are really watery. Mm -hmm. Um, that's why I really like sauteed vegetables. Cause I just sort of like the crunch. Sure. Um, I've never had an issue with visual stimulation with food. Um, you know, some people really like eating food in separate piles. Mm. That really hasn't been a problem with me. Um, okay. I don't have an issue with pain, physical disorders with eating or delayed oral motor function. As far as I know, there's no overgrowth of candida, but okay. I do have food sensitivities. So when I was 15, um, you know, at that time, I still had the fear of vomiting out of nowhere. And I and I vividly remember this started happening right after a spring break trip to Mexico. I was nauseous 
every waking moment of the day without any explanation. And I never mm -hmm. threw up. But, you, you know, like if you have a fear of vomiting, you are just constantly in fear right, right. and like observing every minor feeling in your body, wondering if you're going to be sick. And and, you know, and I'm panicking and crying and telling my mom I feel nauseous. And my mom's right, right. like, I don't know if I should send you to school or not. Mm. And, and, and again, it was every single day for two months wow. and it was awful and we couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so we were going through a lot of, you know, ruling out different options. And then mm -hmm. we had a therapist that said, maybe Nicole has a food allergy. Mm. And I didn't, I was shocked by that because I'm like, you know, I didn't think you could develop a food allergy. I thought you were born with it. But right. I ended up doing allergy testing and I found out that I had a sensitivity to gluten, dairy, eggs, and soy. Well, there's and a lot of things that are in food right there. Yeah. And additionally, my mom also had the same food sensitivities and hmm. it was really difficult. I mean, there's so many things that have all four of those things in them. Definitely. And being a teenager, you eat a lot of the things that have gluten, dairy, eggs, and Absolutely. soy. Absolutely, yeah. And when I got this diagnosis, it was 2006, and there were not a lot of options when it came to gluten and dairy-free alternatives, mm -hmm. especially in restaurants. And so I just remember like looking at menus and crying. Yeah, I can't Because I was like, what here, am yeah. I going to eat? And right. I don't want to eat salads the rest of my life. Um, and, you know, and I had to change my yeah. diet so radically. Um but you you know it's one of those things where you end up getting used to it and i'm at the point where i can eat a little bit of dairy mm. but i wouldn't i'm not going to eat pizza i don't go out of my way to eat gluten and dairy i don't miss it um i have outgrown the egg and soy intolerance so i do okay. eat that mm -hmm. um and you know i call it a sensitivity because it's not celiac i'm not going to have anaphylactic shock sure it's and, and it's to the point where I can actually eat a little bit of those things and not experience nausea. But if I eat like an entire cake, I'm not going to feel great afterwards. So, so it's, yeah, for sure. it's like being able to eat it in very small doses mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is kind of the way I look at it. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing, looking back at this whole experience is I remember when I was, uh, I think this was before the food allergy diagnosis, but I remember sitting on my kitchen floor crying mm. about, you know, why am I feeling so sick all the time? And I'm binge eating bread and cheese as a soothing thing. Right, right. And I look back on out. that memory yeah. and I'm like, oh, my God, you were eating the thing that was making you sick. Not knowing. Yeah, for sure. Um, And so. I, and, and then the last thing I'll add is um, because of my autism diagnosis, my mom developed this homeopathic holistic lifestyle. And so we rarely had processed foods or even mm. food that wasn't organic. Whole foods mm -hmm. didn't exist at the time. So we ate at like yeah. wild oats, alfalfas. Sure. I can't remember any time where we didn't eat organic. I remember eating almond butter and veganese mm. instead mm -hmm. of peanut butter mm -hmm. and mayonnaise. And... Mm -hmm. I, I will say looking back on it, like I have really healthy habits today. And I, I would say for the most part, I've had healthy habits my whole life. And mm -hmm. that had a lot to do with growing up with that being familiar. Um, and I don't know if this is good or bad, but this created an aversion to processed foods. Um, 
And I, I, I remember um, there was one time I, we were at King Supers and there was, uh, at the time, Pokemon was really big. And there yeah. was a Lunchable. And on the back of the Lunchable, it had like little um, cardboard cutout Pokemon cards. And I was like, I want the Lunchable. And and I yeah. never had a Lunchable. I saw my peers eating it. And I was it's really fun. Yeah it, looks, yeah, it looks fun. And so I begged my mom for a Lunchable. I was six. And mm -hmm. my mom was like, reluctantly bought me the Lunchable. So I'm eating the Lunchable. And I said, you know, oh, this is organic, right? And my mom nope. goes, no, it's not organic. And at the time, I thought that eating organic was like a status symbol that if you oh, ate organic, you were organic. And the mm. moment that you ate anything that wasn't organic, you lost that status of being organic and you could never go back to it. So I cried so hard because I was like, Milton. oh my God, mm. I like, I'm not organic anymore. And I thought that like, I could never eat organic food again because I wow. ate processed food. And so I asked my mom, like, can I still eat almond butter and vegan A's and organic vegetables? <laughs> and she's like, yes. Of course you can. So it's just so funny to think yeah. back about like my education Mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. of healthy food but you know at the same time i i didn't feel like it was forced upon um you know i do remember right. eating vegetables but i don't think my parents ever it was never a, a topic of contention i never felt like my parents forced me to eat healthy mm -hmm. uh i never felt like um i don't know that that my style of eating was an issue i i do think my mom's take on it was if you're gonna eat PB and J, make sure that those ingredients are healthy. Um, and okay. I think that that that's a good approach to it. You know, if sure. the kid, you know, if you have an autistic child that's heavily restricted with their diet, at least make sure that they're eating whole wheat bread instead of white bread, or right. you know, gluten free bread, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so I do think having a foundational, um, holistic ultra healthy lifestyle from the beginning, uh, really helped me to have good eating habits, but mm -hmm. that's what worked for me. That's not what's necessarily universal. And, right, and I will say sure. too, my neurotypical brother grew up, grew up with that same lifestyle. And I can't say he's like, you know, tried and true eating healthy, organic food all the time. So it's a really yeah. subjective thing. Yeah, for sure. So how about you, Brett? So what struggles did your son Josh have with picky eating based on what we talked about previously? Okay. So, um, yeah, Josh definitely had some of some aversions to things, right? No spicy foods. Um, I, I don't know if that was, well, I mean, it's this is a sensory thing. So the other thing he enjoyed is um, butter and noodles. Right. If he could eat butter and noodles all all the time, he would be a happy kid. So mac and cheese was a go to hot dogs was fine without um, the sauce. Maybe the sauce would be on the side or something that, you know, would just eat the hot dog by itself. Um, and he liked salt in, in a weird way. So he would have like the Ritz cracker and then he would ask for more salt and he'd pour salt on it and then he would lick lick that off and then pour more salt on it and lick that off until the, the Ritz cracker was just like a soggy kind of mess, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Um, he didn't really want to try anything new. And this is when he's a, a younger child. So before he started first grade, right, 
we got a divorce and now I'm, I'm a single dad. And the last thing I want to do is fight with the kid after a long day about what he's going to eat. So we had a lot of pasta, a lot of pasta foods. And his choices were um, to have sauce or not to have sauce. But, you know, he loved the noodles and can do that. And he would have a little bit of corn, um, like the, the frozen corn or the canned corn. Canned corn was better than frozen and peas. And that was just, you know, me saying, all right, let's make this simplistic. You know, you got to eat something. You know, here's some, you got some choices there. And, and for the most part, he was fine with that. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that was really interesting that I, I, I'm looking back on now, anytime we had steak or anything like that, um, or other meat kind of thing, it had to be chopped into small pieces, right? So I would think, you know, oh, this is small enough. Nope. Before I touch it, it's got to be chopped up. So we would have to tr cut up his food for him. And so another thing is that corn on the cob, he would not eat corn on the cob unless we cut off the, the corn on the cob and it was on a the plate, then he would eat it. Mm -hmm. Struggles so, like still happening in his adulthood or do you think he's outgrown that? No, we, we've, we, um, th those were, those were childhood issues, right? So a lot of those have, have changed. I don't actually, I don't know that he would eat corn on the cob today, but, um, yeah. This this will come up a later a little bit later in the episode what he's like today and and how we responded to that. Yeah, did you have any um, issues with picky eating like for yourself that impacted the way that you educated Josh and your other son um, Brennan about food? Yeah, so you know I would have aversions to a couple of things, and I'm I'm sure I pass that on to my children. Like for example, beets. There's no way I'm going to have beets. I'm not going to cook beets. I'm not going to serve beets, you know, in any kind of form, which is, I have a story later um, in the podcast about that, but nope, that's not going to happen. Um, the other thing that I, I wanted my kids to experience is um, oysters, right? Oysters on a cracker, not having it. So I, you know, it looks strange. It smells strange. And Josh is like, nope. I don't care if it's on a Ritz cracker. I'm not eating that. It's like, all right, you don't have to. I Unless just, you put like a bunch of salt and he just licks no, no, on the he wouldn't even no. It was cracker. it was 100 nasty. He was not going to touch it. And yeah. same with my other my other son. That's that's so interesting. Um, so one thing I I've been thinking about uh, as we've been talking about picky eating is I think a lot of people with autism, um, their their diet is heavily consistent around carbs. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and every time I read a list, it's always like processed meats, right. um, you know, processed carbs. And so one thing that I'm sure parents are concerned about is, is if your diet is so restrictive to things that maybe gain, make you gain weight or right. cause childhood obesity. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sort of wondering what parents do to address that. Do you address it or do you just realize that? the struggle with picky eating outweighs the, the struggle with gaining weight. I, th I think that's a parent per parent issue, right? So for yeah. me, um, and I'll, I'll talk about this later in the next, in the next segment, but um, what you present to your child in term, and you educate your child as you go too, right? So, you know, this is what we're eating and this is why we're eating it. Um, later on, I got a lot better about that. But you want to avoid the things that are going to be unhealthy for your child. Mm -hmm. So you try to stay away from those things and then offer your child choices. 
right? I think that that's some of the best you educate and then offer choices. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard stories about um, if you garden with your kid, that mm -hmm. that builds a, a good Absolutely. relationship with food. Yeah, and that I, goes into preparing the, the food too, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, we had Josh, fine. when I got remarried, I mean, I'm, I'm foreshadowing a little bit in the next part of this episode, but when, when I got remarried um, and we had, and Josh is older and he is in the kitchen helping us cook as part of his chores, you know, one kid is going to cook one meal one day and one kid is going to cook a meal next day because I want everybody to participate in the family thing and take part in the family thing. And that's important. He would have a better food experience because he helped make that. And there was some pride in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess to close on the, the whole topic of picky eating and weight. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it's really subjective. I really like the idea of, you know, if the kid wants to eat fries and burgers that, you know, try cooking it instead of, you know, just going to McDonald's and picking something up. Right. Um, I think what's tricky, like, I think if it were me, I would maybe take the approach of, you know, it may be sensory soothing to eat that food initially, mm -hmm. but what negative impacts is that food going to have on your body that's going to worsen right. your, your sensory issues? Right. The hard part about it is there's like an emotional disconnect. Kids are not going to think long-term about, you know, oh, I'm going to eat this food and negatively impacts Correct. my body. They just care right. about, oh, it tastes good and I, I like it. Right. I think adults get better about creating that relationship. So yeah, it's really tricky and it's hard to reflect on that as somebody who's not currently a parent. But mm -hmm. I do think it's important um, to be proactive about because, you know, that hyper pickiness can lead to gaining weight and losing weight. Yes. And that that can create a lot of problems mm -hmm. down the line. Absolutely. All right. So parents will often get frustrated with a child with autism's picky eating, either because the child isn't getting proper nutrition or it impacts the family's cooking and dining routines. Parents are under the impression that autistic children will eventually grow out of their picky eating as long as parents are forcing them to try new things. Yet many autistic adults state that they never grow out of their picky eating issues and Subsequently, they don't like being forced by others right. to try new things. Right. Um, you know, going back to the whole socializing thing, you know, if you're if you're going on a date, you are making the decision to try things that are out of your comfort zone to give an illusion. That person isn't directly forcing you. So there is a difference there. Right. So, Brett, in in summarizing all of what I just talked about. So how do you respond to this as a parent? Does it matter to you that Josh has or could have restrictive eating preferences as an adult? Right. Um, personally, it doesn't, you know, it, I, I want him to eat healthy for sure. And I think, you know, just to finish that second half of the story, which I wanted to talk about now, uh, when I got remarried, my wife, Lori, is all about healthier eating. And so we all ate healthier, right? And so that's more organic, less processed food. You know, when we're talking through, this is why we're getting away from uh, mac and cheese. This is why we're getting away from gluten. And we read some accounts that gluten can negatively impact people on the spectrum. So we were more than happy to reduce that over time. Um, knowing what's processed, knowing what is high fructose corn syrup and educating everybody on that. Um, and having, like I said, help Joshua help us with food prep all helped us and helped him to understand his relationship with food 
and to say, okay, you know, I can, I can eat more things that are better for me. And, and now he has reduced his gluten intake, which we thought had a um, big impact in, in his autistic behavior in high school. Although, you know, that's, there's no hard, hard proof of that, but um, I, I think there, that did contribute some way into that. The other thing is, um, you know, Josh is still a picky eater to, to this day. If we went out, you know, he gets to choose what he, he wants to do. And, and, and sometimes he'll, he'll go for the mac and cheese, right? So this becomes something that we don't have often at home anymore. And then he'll eat maybe a third of it or half mm-hmm. of it, and then he'll be done. And that's cool, you know? So he'll eat what he wants to eat. Um, and to this day, he avoids dairy and he avoids gluten. So I think, you know, he's, he does, he's aware of um, the role of food in his health, um, but he is, he's never been an overeater, um, and, and I think that's helped him. Yeah, and I think it's really good that the journey of healthy eating is something that the family commits to rather than right. It's everybody. outing yeah. the, the child with autism and saying, oh, well, you're different and you need to do this. Right. And or I, I have I think, to, yeah, or I have to cook like, a special meal for you only yeah, because you well, can't handle this. Right. And I also think about like how hypocritical it is that like parents, you know, try so hard to get their kids to eat healthy and they're not really modeling that mm-hmm. for their child. Like it's sure. a philosophy and it's a mindset, but for some people, it's a habit that's really hard to break. Right. And so being able to model that. And again, it's hard. It's like, it's so difficult to ask that of your children and not model that yourself. Um, when I think about that topic of, of eating junk food. So I think about it from the perspective of financial literacy. Mm. If my child wants a fruity, sugary, artificial cereal that I, as a parent don't value buying for them, I could say, you know, you can do chores around the house for money and you can buy that healthy, unhealthy junk food that I don't want to buy. And so, <laughs> okay. you know, so, so it's not, yeah, there's saying, some choice, no, you can't have it, right. but it's about if you want your own autonomy to make your own decisions, mm-hmm. you're going to have to, you know, make money to earn that. And, right. um, and, and that goes, it goes, hang on, it just goes into oh, yeah. the age of the child as well to understand that concept. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, because I'm not, you know, like my husband sometimes doesn't make as healthy of choices as I do. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, you know, shame him for it. He has his own financial autonomy to make his own choices. Sure. So I I have the mindset that my children can do the same thing. And if they want a video game, but they also want fruity cereal, they got to prioritize what's more important. Right. And if they want to buy the fruity cereal, that's less money that could go towards a video game. So for me, I think it it teaches the critical thinking of is that fruity cereal more important than a video game? And if it is, that's fine. And, you know, maybe I want them to feel a sense of reward that they earned it rather than, you know, you Mm -hmm. go into the grocery store and they just grab it and put it in the cart and just expect that that's what you're going to buy. Right. Um. And I think that, you know, for me, that's better than coming up to my child and having the argument about, no, you can't have it. Well, why can't I have it? Well, because it's not healthy. Well, I don't care. Right, right. You know, it's like, okay, well, you can have this, but I'm not going to enable you buying this 
unhealthy food. Right. You know, so that's where I think the financial literacy can come in. And you're, you know, you're killing two birds with one stone. You're teaching financial responsibility as well as um, teaching them to make healthy financial choices as well as making healthy food choices. Yeah. 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 Okay. So Nicole, how did your parents feel about your picky eating and how did they respond to it? Um, so as I said before, I feel like my picky eating was more related to my phobia than my disinterest in food. Um, I, I think my parents, I think especially my mom was more picky about my diet. Cause again, you know, young parents of very little autistic kids are thinking about the the gluten-free, casein-free, like mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. kind of food isn't going to put my kid in distress kind of thing. Right. So now I, again, I don't think that it was picky and restrictive, but I do think my mom um, did a good job being very particular about having a healthy lifestyle and a healthy palate. Um, I do think, I mean, I don't think my parents got frustrated with my picky eating because it wasn't something that directly impacted them. Um, we paid attention to expired food and they accommod they accommodated my dietary needs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think the fact that my mom also had the same food sensitivities as me, mm -hmm. um, granted, like my mom didn't cook much, but I think the advantage of eating out is like everybody orders what they want. Right. And that's not putting a lot of burden on my mom who usually cooked whenever she wanted to, right. um, to make different types of food. Right. And my belief is like eating gluten and dairy free is actually pretty good for your health. Right. I've never really had to worry about weight gain being gluten and dairy intolerant with, you know, moderation on carbs and all mm -hmm. that. Um, and the only issue really was that my parents ate a lot, out, out a lot and often mm -hmm. gave away food to me without knowing that expired. Um, and, and again, like, I don't know, when we ate out when I was younger, I, I didn't really have sensory issues in restaurants. But as I got older, I, I think it got harder. Um, so I think that as I got older, I sort of had a disinterest in eating out just because there were just so many sensory issues that I felt like I had to tough it out through just to mm -hmm. be with my family. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really treasure those home cooked meals, okay. um, which were as I get older, they're super, super rare for mm. my family. Um, because my mom was a passionate health nut, she is a passionate health nut. Healthy eating was familiar and made me feel good. I felt mm. like my pickiness um, is related to the right things. And ironically, I do remember being kind of a picky eater before the gluten and dairy diagnosis where I just wasn't a sweets person. Right. And part of it was that, uh, when I was 11, I did throw up from eating too many sweets. So I don't know if that was part of it, but I just remember like not really having an interest in ice cream and cake um, mm -hmm. and dessert in general. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was because I was gluten and dairy intolerant, but I think that I was really trained well by my mom that uh, I, I sugary, sweet, creamy, you know, it wasn't good for my body. Right, um, right. So I think that was really helpful. Um, I love eating produce. Uh, there are certain types of produce I'll eat if it's cooked a certain way, but mm -hmm. I really love eating vegetables. I love eating fruit. Um, I would, you know, pick that over being experimental with meat. Mm. 
Um, I tend to get more sensory discomfort with junk food. Um, and I, I don't think that it actually has to do with the sensory discomfort. I think it has to do with the mindset of, um, I know this isn't good for my body. So how is it going to make me feel? Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. How about, how about now? How does your husband feel about your picky eating? So we eat a predominantly gluten and dairy free diet. He's the cook and doesn't want to cook two different meals for the two of us. That makes sense. Um, you know, sometimes he, he's like, oh, I just, I miss eating lasagna. And I'm like, mm. then cook it. <clears throat> like, I'm not, I'm not converting you to be gluten and dairy. It's just right. out of convenience. And I, I have a lot of other um, friends that are couples and um, they're all neurotypical. And it's kind of the same thing where if one partner is vegetarian or vegan or pescatarian, the significant other is just like, ah, oh, it's just not easier to, you know, eat yeah, vegetarian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it's a tricky thing because I think if you love somebody and you just see the benefit of eating without that thing, um, then you just cope with it and it doesn't impact your relationship. But I have a really good neurotypical friend. Um, he was, he's meat lover, loves cooking meat. And he was in a serious relationship with a vegetarian and I remember when he began dating him or dating her, he was like, I don't think I can date a vegetarian. And I said, well, you know, if you love the person, it's not going to be a big deal. But as the relationship right. went on and and closer to the time that he ended up breaking up with her, he was like, I love cooking meat. Mm. Meat is my love language. Oh, I, I want somebody to enjoy the the artistry of cooking meat. Interesting. And I think what it what it made me realize is that as I was talking about earlier, our relationship with food is so important to us. Mm -hmm. And for some people, that that love and passion about certain types of food are just things that you can't compromise in a relationship. Mm. Um, so again, some people are flexible, some people are not. My husband is flexible. Um, and again, I, I do think it's important for couples to not force each other. You know, I've mm -hmm. met people who, you know, somebody's vegan and they want to convert their partner to be vegan. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. Um, you know, my picky eating issues are my problem and my responsibility. And I mm -hmm. am not expecting my husband or my friends to always accommodate for me. And I'm not going to get angry for them not doing so. Yeah, um, makes sense. He did say that, um, so he grew up with, uh, my, my sister-in-law and my mother-in-law have some pickiness around meat and he, my husband and my father-in-law are very adventurous, especially when it comes to meat and seafood. Mm. And so I think for my husband, he said, I can deal with like, the gluten and dairy and sensitivity, but if it went beyond that, mm -hmm. it would be really hard for him. Yeah. Um, and, and he also said, it's one thing to, to accommodate for somebody because they're not going to feel well if they eat that thing rather than, sure. you know, Oh, I'm not eating gluten. Cause I'm trying to lose weight. Like it's more of a disinterest kind of thing. Um, so I think it is important. Like if you have those food restrictions or that picky eating, you just don't want it to heavily impact your significant other. Right. Um, and I think for some people, you know, that heavy restriction really does impact the relationship. Um, and and again, you know, you you don't want your picky eating to negatively compromise your partner. 
And you also don't want that picky eating to impact you financially. So, right, right. you know, one thing we talk about is like my, my husband does all of the grocery shopping mm-hmm. and he'll buy, uh, you know, my special almond butter, my gluten-free sure. bread, my yes. coconut milk yogurt. Mm-hmm. And he came back and he goes, do you have any understanding of how expensive this food is? <laughs> you know, so he pays like three bucks for a loaf of bread. I sure. pay six or $7. Right. And so we had a conversation about, you know, can you not burn through the gluten-free bread so quickly in the month? Can you not burn through the coconut milk yogurt because it's so expensive? And so that, that, that's another really hard thing is that if those, if that picky eating has a really significant impact Mm -hmm. on your financial relationship, that's really hard. And so I think it's valid. And so one thing that I've considered exploring is doing more of a, a paleo diet, mm. um, which paleo diet, you know, you're basically cutting out all processed foods. So my thinking is like, well, if I don't eat gluten-free bread and I eat something healthier like quinoa, um, that's sure. cheaper. So again, it's, you know, quinoa is processed, but it's not, it's different than bread in a way. Right. But I just look at it as like, if I make that compromise, I'm only going to make my, my healthy eating even more healthy. So, uh, I'm, I'm okay with those conversations, but there are some other people where it's like, they're not budging on that. Yeah. 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 And then that kind of goes to what you were saying earlier. You know, if you're in a relationship where one person likes meat and the other person on the spectrum does not, you know, one thing that we would not think about being neurotypical is um, the sensory experiences around cooking meat, right? There's that oh, smell, yeah. especially smell, that smell, that the looking at it, you know, it, it's for people who don't want to look at and smell meat, you know, especially like bacon. I mean, it, it fills up the house, that smell. So <laughs> something, something else to consider. It. Not yeah. necessarily. I mean, you know, it's, it's just, it's something else to think about the sensory part of it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So moving on, uh, Nicole, what advice do you have for parents that are concerned about their child's picky eating? So an autistic person's ability to overcome picky eating has to be done on their terms, not on the terms of neurotypical people around them. This is my opinion, and it is echoed by a lot of autistic adults that are blogging on the internet on these uh, topics. Mm-hmm. You want to em- empathize and validate the reasons behind their pickiness, which a lot of occupational therapists do a really good job with. It's okay if they don't grow out of it. Forcing someone to try food that they don't want to eat or can't eat can cause trauma and resentment. Mm. That would be similar to someone with a gluten intolerance eating gluten as a way to overcome the allergy or a vegan being forced by their parents to eat meat. It is a lifestyle choice that matters to them, even if it doesn't make sense to you. And also on this topic, you know, when I think back to previous episodes where, you know, like, for example, we had an episode about um, eye contact Mm -hmm. and it's just drilled into the autistic person. Well, you got to always make eye contact. But we never really talk about like, well, neurotypical people avoid eye contact. So why is this such a a rigid thing for people with autism? I think that that food relationships are really similar. Neurotypical people have food preference issues. Mm-hmm. And so if we are trying to push an autistic person to eat certain things when the neurotypical person doesn't want to push themselves to eat, I, I think it's 
a little hypocritical. Right, for sure. And, you know, I again, I, I think that the goal is, the foundational goal is have a healthy relationship with food. That mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean eating healthy. It just means that your diet isn't ultra restrictive and you're not, you know, gaining a ton of weight or losing a ton of weight. Mm -hmm. When you have that foundation settled, then you can have a discussion about what it means to eat in a healthy way. Or, okay, uh, we want you to eat broccoli. What are the ways that you could eat broccoli? Yeah. You know, there are some autistic people who will never put a vegetable in their mouth, but they have no problem, you know, drinking vegetable juice or, mm. you know, uh, putting vegetables in a fruit smoothie. Mm. If that's what works for them, that's fine. Right. Or if they need to take, um, you know, vitamin supplements as a way to compensate, sure. that's fine. You know, it, it doesn't have to look a certain perfectionist way. And you, if you think about it, like not every person in the world, autistic or not, is going to be the perfect standard of eating healthy. Yeah. You know, so I so I think it it's important to just be realistic about, you know, what is an average expectation with eating food? Mm -hmm. And you know, does it really involve being healthy? And more importantly, how are you empowering your child to make their own choices, right. setting their own boundaries with food rather than forcing it on them all the time? Right. And I like that idea of um, having, being helping in the kitchen, but also um, understanding where the food comes from. So for example, you know, I would never eat beets. Josh would never eat beets, but if we prepped it and put it in a brownie, then it was okay. I like the the idea of prepping, although I think sometimes kids can get overstimulated from school and they want to decompress oh, and sure. that's not an interest to them. Or, Absolutely. you know, the cooking process creates a lot of sensory triggers. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do think if you're inviting your kid to cook and there are those sensory triggers, teach them to problem solve. Are mm -hmm. you going to cook wearing earplugs? Sure. Um, you know, I after COVID, you know, I have a ton of masks. If I have an issue with smell, do I want to wear a mask while I cook? Sure. Um, what else? Uh, you know, do you want to yeah. wear gloves when you're yes. prepping things? Yes. You know, teach them to create their own sensory accommodation so that mm -hmm. when they can show up and cook their own food. Exactly. Because, you know, cooking food is such an important adult skill. Right. And, and, and I don't think that it's healthy for a child to be normed into adulthood that the only way they're going to get their food is if they just buy pre-made food and that's really right, right. expensive sure um, and and not so, good for you but and, yeah, and yeah. so yeah the goal of a podcast and much of these episodes is to build independence right so you know what role can your child can you teach your child to prep their own food and make choices yeah. good make good choices yeah or i think back to Haley moss who loved cake you know, take her to a bakery, show her how cakes are made. You know, it, it, again, it's about how do you build that exciting relationship with food? And on that mm. note, there's a lot of people with autism that said the food network really contributed to their relationship with food. Interesting. And, uh, and Danny Rade in particular said, um, uh, what was it? It was the show cutthroat kitchen. Um, basically where, you know, expert chefs were challenged to create food with like weird tools. Yes. And I, I guess for him that created a lot of excitement about problem solving mm. and, and exploring the equipment of how mm -hmm. you cook.
Sure. So you just never know, you know, sometimes having that observation of people cooking can get you excited and curious about it. Um, you can take them, you know, take a child with autism to places where engaging with food doesn't create um, sensory overstimulation. So for an example, a lot of people with autism struggle with going to the grocery store, but maybe going to a farmer's market is better because it's mm -hmm. an open space. Yes. And there are, you know, it, it's more of a sense of community rather than, you know, going into this sterile grocery store, trying to cross things off your grocery list. Right. And the sensory stimulation from packaging and how many people <laughs> yeah. are there and um, the colors and, you know, it's all geared to impulse buying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and, I, and I just, I drill this point over and over and over. It's very similar to you know, trying to find certain activities the child likes that are not going to be overstimulating. Right. Finding those environments where food is fun to interact with makes a very, very big mm -hmm. difference for an autistic person having a better relationship with food. Right. Um, so even if they are a picky eater, still take them to the farmer's market. Just have them explore, have them be around food, even if they're not consuming it, just to be exposed. Sure. Just to see like, this is an option. So maybe mm -hmm. if you're curious, we can take a look at it, you know? Sure. Um, I stated this before, you know, take vitamins that make up for the lost nutrients due to picky eating. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if picky eating is, is having a really significant impact on your health, um, go to an occupational therapist, um, a somatic therapist, or an eating disorder clinic if relevant. And don't allow a child to eat food that can negatively impact their mood, such as sugary things leading to increased anxiety, hyperactivity, or agitation. So I think, again, that is a really good conversation. Um, you know, as I was telling earlier, if the kid isn't creating that uh, long-term impact of if I eat this, I gain weight. But if they understand that their increased meltdowns, their increased uh, moodiness, agitation is directly impacted by the food they're eating, mm -hmm. they may be more likely to make different decisions because even though it tastes good in the beginning, they don't feel good later. Right. And right. nobody wants to go into a meltdown, you know, caused by food. And, right. you know, so so that, that can be a really good um, thing to talk about. But more importantly, you know, I talk about those really baseline goals about establishing a relationship with food. Mm -hmm. Sugar is just not healthy for you. Right. So if you can really significantly limit the child's sugar intake, that's going to make a difference. The gluten-free casein three free thing, um, in my opinion, you should only really look into that if the child actually has an intolerance to it. Um Otherwise, it's just really subjective. I, I can't really say that uh, gluten and dairy removal um, makes a huge difference. I think it does for some people, and mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter for other people. Right. Okay. So what about um, dating and picking eating, right? Or making friends and hanging out with coworkers? What were so you some of your advice for that? Yeah. So you don't want to be in a social predicament that makes you feel miserable and masked. If you need to take care of your food needs before a social event, do so, just like what Haley Moss did. As long as the picky eating doesn't negatively impact the other people around you, then it should be fine. Um, and, and one point that I really got to drill in people's heads, and it's not just people with autism. I think it's anybody who has a food allergy, uh, has a food preference like being vegetarian or vegan, 
I think it is not a good idea to ever expect your friends who are hosting a party or your your date making a meal. I mean, maybe that's a little different, but you shouldn't put it on other people to just know and accommodate for you. Um, I have friends that are super nice about it, um, really go out of their way to buy gluten-free, dairy-free products and make sure that I'm fed. And I'm so appreciative of that, but I don't go into it with an expectation that that's what they do. Mm. And, you know, if they're like, oh my God, I, I forgot that you have this thing. I'm not making a big deal out of it. I just manage with what I can eat. And I thank them for being mindful of it. Um, I remember uh, I, I was part of a club at my college and we had like a Halloween party and there was a girl who had a dairy allergy and she was beyond the moon upset that the the leaders of the club, you know, bought pizza, you know, had a salad that had dairy in it and was just like, oh, how dare you not accommodate for me? Mm. And my thinking is like, it's your responsibility to go and buy your own food in a, ahead of time. Like it's not their problem. So you shouldn't right. be angry at them for that. Um, yeah. I think it's just manners to, you know, be mindful of how you accommodate for yourself first. And if people go out of their way to accommodate for you, first off, they're true friends. Right. And secondly, like, it's okay if they don't, they're not bad friends. If sure. they're not, if they don't know how to accommodate or they financially can't afford to buy those um, substitutions. Sure. So take care of it on your own. Mm. Um, arrange get togethers with people that involve food that meet your preference. Mm -hmm. Have a picnic so that you can bring the food that works for you. You know, yeah, have exactly. a potluck. Exactly. I'm really big on vegetables. So I'm always the vegetable person because I, I just can't trust my friends are going to provide vegetables. Um, have a taste. Have a bowl date. of chips. We have five yeah. bowls of chips. Yay. Oh my God. Like, especially when I was in high school and college, like nobody ever brought fruit or veggies. Sure. So I'm always like, I'm going to make sure I do this. Um, and I remember doing that, like for my homeroom students when I taught high school and mm -hmm. they never ate the healthy food. Of it was always not. like they of ate the donuts, not. they hate the bagels, but, Come but on. I want it to be an option and I want it to be an option for me. Um, you know, yeah. so have a tastings date where you try different brands of fruit, mm -hmm. food that you enjoy. I actually have um, two neurotypical, well, non-autistic friends. Uh, one has ADHD, so she's neurotypical. Um, they did a date where they went to King Supers and they bought almond milk, banana milk, uh, oat milk, mm. and they wanted to try different types of milk. Yeah, that's fun. I'm shocked that somebody who doesn't have a food sensitivity would do that, but sure. they thought it was fun. So I was like, okay, that, why not? Um, or go to a place where you can get drinks instead of food or sure. go on a date that doesn't involve food at all. You know, right. you can go for a walk, go for a hike. Um, like I said, you bring a picnic, bring your own food. Right. Um, there's ways that you can accommodate for that rather than, you know, just going to a restaurant, trying to sure. figure it out. Sure. Um, you can go to a fancy food court where there are different options. Um, do you want to share that you have sensory discomforts with food to the people you're interacting with? I do think you know, if you're dating, probably a good idea to bring up. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, to be honest, when I think about it with my gluten and dairy sensitivities, it, it, I'm pretty flexible. I can pretty much go anywhere. Um, I have a lot of friends that are, you know, always conscientious. They're worried. 
They want to make sure that I, I go somewhere where I can eat. And I said, don't worry about it. You know, go where you want to go. I, I've, I have enough experience with these um, intolerances that I know what to look for, mm-hmm. what to ask for. I look at the menu ahead of time. Sure. Um, and there are certain restaurants that I can't go to. And I do communicate that. But, you know, like I don't personally feel judged when I when I tell people about it. If anything, it just makes them want to accommodate. Now, I will say I remember um I had a couple of birthdays where either I had like, I had a fruit cake, like a really healthy cake. Mm. Uh, I I'm the type of person, like if I wasn't gluten and dairy intolerant, I would eat like zucchini cake, carrot cake. I love sure. vegetable cakes. Sure. And my friends were always dumbfounded by that. They're like, we don't want to eat vegetables or fruit in our dessert. Yeah. And then there was another birthday where my mom found like this cake that had no gluten, dairy, eggs, or soy. And I remember my friends ate it. And one of them said, just so you know, we're eating this because we're your friends, not because Mm. we think it tastes good. Okay, there you go. So I was like, you know, sometimes that's how you know who your best friends are. I guess so. For better or worse. And I can't tell you how many times I've been made fun of for being gluten and dairy intolerant, but I'm in on the joke. It's fine. Yeah. Um, You know, so another thing is whoever pays, can have more control over the restaurant they pick. Mm. Um, so that, so, you know, think about it on a first date um, or a second date, That that's something that can really matter. And again, you know, talk about the restaurant ahead of time um, so that that way, you know, you're not blindsided by going to a place that just doesn't have what you need. Right. Um, you know, sometimes connecting with people can be a motivation to overcome picky eating. I had a coworker teacher whose son, who's not autistic, was had the most extreme level of picky eating that I'd ever heard of. And he was the type of person where if he ate beyond his his diet, he would vomit. Mm. And uh, and that was a big reinforcement. And my coworker said the moment he wanted to date, that was when he started overcoming his picky eating. Well, he has so, a different desire there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And then the last thing I'll say is work with it rather than against it. You know, working against it is a form of masking. Sure. Meet your body where it's at. Make sure that when you're at home, you're eating in a way that works for your preferences, your palate, your your body. Mm -hmm. Um, And you want to surround yourself with people that support that. Again, as long as it's not heavily compromising them. Yeah. And that goes to like a general rule of thumb when it comes to autistic diets. Things to avoid, high sugar foods, dairy products, gluten and wheat products when you can, processed meats, processed snacks, and alcohol. So the best combination of foods in a meal are a protein, a fat, and a fiber, and the goal is balance and moderation. Yeah, and when we talk about fat, we're talking about healthy, saturated fats like avocado. Mm -hmm. Um. And I think this formula is a great way for autistic adults to plan their meals, even if they struggle with picky eating. And again, you know, for some people taking on, you know, all of, you know, get rid of sugar, get rid of dairy, get rid of gluten, that can be a lot. So one way that you can look at it is how can you reduce it um, and connect it to another health goal? And I think when it comes to parents, like let's say you have a teenager or a young adult, and you're concerned about their eating, um, I think being able to have a conversation about it, you know, asking them, how do you feel after you have these things? 
Um, you know, having direct conversations and just giving them autonomy and choice and, and reflection rather than, you know, if they live right. with you, just directly removing it. Right, right. Um, and again, you know, my opinion, and this is just my opinion, you know, parents may disagree. I just don't personally feel that you should eliminate gluten and dairy just because it's everywhere, but, right. you know, eliminate it if you get an allergy test. You know, mm -hmm. just do an assessment sure. to see if the child actually can't have that thing mm -hmm. before you just make assumptions about, you know, oh, I'm going to eliminate this because you can eliminate gluten and dairy. They're still going to have a health problem. And it might be because they're allergic to something else that's not on your radar, like peanuts. Right. right. You know, so I, I'm a strong believer that every child with autism should get an allergy test. Sure. And then maybe read about, you know, common autistic diets that autistic adults are doing, not mm. what parents and, you know, these organizations are saying to do, because that is going to be more motivation for the autistic adult to yeah, yeah. have that feeling of control and autonomy. Okay. So how about you? When you um, remove gluten and dairy from your diet, did you notice a change in your temperament at all? My parents didn't remove gluten and dairy from my diet at a young age. Um, I tested positive for gluten and dairy intolerance. I noticed that I'm less anxious and agitated when I eat gluten and dairy free. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't say the diet alone made radical changes towards my autism struggles. Um, any inflammation in the body is going to create physical and mental health issues, which can also create nervous system struggles. So again, you know, going back to what kind of diet a parent can facilitate for their child, think about it from the perspective of inflammation mm -hmm. uh, rather than, you know, oh, I just want my child to be healthy because everybody's definition of healthy is different right. and healthy is a spectrum. And we don't want to go for this extreme perfectionism of health. Mm -hmm. Um, because I already ate a very healthy diet, it was familiar to cut things out that weren't serving my body any good. Um, and so when it comes to other foods, that's been really helpful to just go, oh, this doesn't make me feel good. And I just don't have an emotional attachment to it. Yeah. Um, I do notice, like I do drink alcohol. I, I notice that I don't really like strong alcohol or, mm -hmm. um, drinking more than one drink because I'll, I'll notice I get a lot of heat in mm. my vagus nerve and I'm, and I'm like, my anxiety goes up. Mm. Um, I'm massaging my vagus nerve. So I'm aware that, you know, alcohol does not feel good to my nervous system mm -hmm. beyond a certain dose. And so, uh, I am getting better about that. And, and I rarely drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. And if I had to eliminate alcohol, I'd totally be fine doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, it also helped that my mom was also gluten and dairy intolerant. Um, I, not that I feel like my mom cried like I did, but mm. I, I think being able to explore what my mom was going to order and then realize like, oh, I could order the same thing she's ordering. I think that helped me to not feel so isolated mm. or othered for not being able to eat what everybody could eat. And yeah. You know, to, to, I was old enough where my mom and I could actually have a discussion about it and talk about the ways we, we problem solve. So I think that, that really helped me to embrace my sensitivities at an older age. Mm. So mm -hmm. did Josh adopt a certain diet because it benefited his stomach or his nervous system? Yes. Uh, later in life, he became dairy free. 
because he said, you know, I think I do have some sensitive sensitivities around dairy. And so I'm just going to cut it out of my diet. And he said he felt a lot better when he did. Was there anything else he did? Well, the other is uh, gluten reduced. I mean, we did this as a family together and I still, to this day, I don't think he has a lot of gluten. Mm-hmm. Which is so ironic because he was the big pasta kid. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, Actually, my brother also chose to cut out dairy um, because we found out dairy was exacerbating his acne. Mm. He had really horrible acne when he was in high school and just eliminating dairy completely cleared up his acne. So I think there are a lot of reasons that you could cut out gluten or dairy. And, you know, there's a lot of really good health motivations for doing so. So. Mm Dairy does seem to be a problem. Yeah, definitely. Um, I tried doing some research to see if autistic children and adults that are vegetarian or vegan had any health benefits. There wasn't a lot of information on that topic. Um, Some people can experience heaviness, inflammation, or discomfort eating meat. For some bodies, meat isn't good for them. Um, I had actually considered that, like maybe reducing my meat intake. But uh, because of my blood type and just the way my body is, uh, I had a lot of nutritionists and doctors that said I actually need to eat more meat and especially dark meat. Mm. So it it just really depends on the body you have. Um, Some people with autism won't eat meat because of their deep empathy towards animals. Mm -hmm. And um, meat alternatives can be processed with soy, gluten, dairy, and other preservatives. So that can be a little tricky if you're choosing to be vegetarian or vegan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes I prefer eating vegetarian and most of the time I eat meat because I get uh, protein depletion easily. Interesting. Okay. And so let's go into a little bit about the vagus nerves impact on autism and food. And Nicole, I'm going to have you chime in here a little bit um, towards the end. Okay. okay. So the vagus nerve is located in the back of your neck and is linked to the parasympathetic parasympath- nervous system, and it plays a role in managing digestion. Uh, there are many books that recommend anti-inflammatory diets that support better vagal tones. Eating anti-inflammatory diet not only reduces digestive issues, but also sensory distress with food. So one of those examples is a vagus nerve diet by Larry Jameson. There are also books that talk about how healing the vagus nerves restores digestion. And this, an example of this is a vagus nerve gut-brain connection by Wendy Hayden. And doing vagus nerve exercises before and after eating can also help with digestion. Now, we have a lot of resources on books about the vagus nerve and vagus nerve exercises in our podcast episodes about sensory processing disorder, and these are listed as resources in the show notes. Now, what I want you to chime in um, with this is that you were talking about massaging the vagus nerve. Can you describe how you do that? So every time I get anxiety, digestive discomfort, or agitation from an uncomfortable food texture, I've been doing this my whole life before I even knew what the vagus nerve was, but I would instinctively rub the back of my neck. Mm. Um, And I didn't realize that what I was doing was I was massaging the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a good idea that parents of autistic children and adults with autism look into an anti-inflammation diet as a way Mm. to deal with picky eating. Um, This is a great way that everyone in the family can get on board with healthy eating without making separate meals. Um, I don't personally own the vagus nerve diet, but I'm actually really curious and would love to cook meals from it as long as it's, you know, gluten and dairy free. Yeah. Um, You know, see if your sensory discomforts with food 
change if you were eating anti-inflammatory food. And, you know, as I've done a lot of research on the vagus nerve for various episodes for our podcast, I think what I've learned is that the vagus nerve for an autistic person is so incredibly strained for a variety of reasons. So I think it is important to make uh, health-based decisions to just give your vagus nerve a little bit of relief. And if your vagus nerve is overstimulated or in a place of chronic stress, it is going to impact your digestion. Yeah. Okay. And so we're coming to the point we're going to um, give some resources, right? And, you know, some things uh, to think about. Go ahead. Are you talking about autism and eating disorders? Yes. Okay. Okay. So um, here, a disclaimer with these resources is that um, much of this information comes from the internet. And we all know that some of the internet stuff that we get is a mixed bag. So, you know, it, when you think about this, you know, you think about, okay, to, to what point does my child have an issue with this? And it's always best to default to um, your doctor or a therapist and getting into the nuts and bolts of this. But we did find some things on the internet that we thought might be useful. All right. Mm -hmm. So there is well, a... And, and to ahead. clarify specifically, um, Josh never had an eating disorder. No. I don't have an eating disorder. So we're only sharing this this information, um, based on internet re research, we are not speaking from personal experience. About right. And this. we're not, we're not professionals in, in describing, you know, solutions to eating disorders. These are just some things that might be helpful. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a website called eating disorders, Victoria, that has an article about the link between autism and anorexia, right? Um, it says that autistic people are more likely to have anorexia than bulimia because the latter can trigger a host of sensory discomforts. That being said, it doesn't mean that people with autism can't be bulimic. Uh, despite most autistic people struggling with their relationship with food, some people with autism may choose to binge and purge as a way to cope with anxiety, depression, or anger. In 1983, Christopher Gilbert, a Swedish professor of child and adolescent psychiatry at the University of Gothenburg, led research proposing the link between autism and anorexia. 20 to 35% of women with anorexia also meet the diagnostic criteria for autism, which is interesting. Uh, there can also be a neurobiological neurobiolo and hereditary link with autism and anorexia. So some reasons a person with autism can develop on anorexia can be a diet restriction as a coping mechanism for masking emotions and anxiety, especially when a person with autism has a hard time understanding their emotions, uh, removing eating in social situations to focus all of their energy on socializing, feel socially acceptable based on standard of thinness, body image is something that comes to my mind, a form of masking autism publicly, uh, fixation or special interest in calorie counting or exercising, um, avoiding uncomfortable body sensations relating to digestion, right? We talked about before vomiting or using the bathroom or sensory overstimulation of food. Um, black and white thinking can cause rigidity with routines and rituals associated with food. And the in inability to identify the, sens the sensation of feeling hungry that can occur during periods of hyperfixation, right? Um, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, an eating disorder where the goal of food restriction is not related to weight loss. This can tend to be diagnosed when a person has nutritional deficiencies. And through one of the motivations 
not to eat food is to avoid sensory discomforts while eating nutrition deficiency increases sensory dysregulation. Neurotypical control over an autistic person's diet as a way to present normal, that can cause a person with autism to restrict their eating as a way to rebel being controlled or ordered to do things to present as neurotypical. Right. And so now we go into some treatments related to autism and, and eating disorders. So this is, this is, you know, obviously when this is becoming a bigger issue. So eating disorder clinics need to accommodate the person's environmental sensory, dietary, and social needs. Not many clinics do this, which makes it challenging for an eating disorder clinic to adequately support a person with autism. These are, you know, these are things that we commonly think of, you know, neurotypical children go through eating disorders. So when we as parents are taking our child to um, a therapist or a clinic or something, but they also have autism, does that clinic understand that and what the impact of that can be on the person as well? Something to think about and to ask right? Um, therapy needs to focus on factors such as sensory, interoception, exithemia, routines, rituals, and resistance to change, for example. Those would be the things to ask, right? Therapists need to help patients with eating disorders understand that autism is not an illness, but a natural way that the brain is wired. Eating disorder patients need to consider receiving an autism diagnosis as a way to make sense of their eating disorder behaviors, if that's appropriate as well. Mm -hmm. And real quick, just vocabulary. Um, so interoception is the inability to identify the sensation of feeling hungry, um, particularly with fixation. And then alexthemia, uh, that is where um, a person has a hard time understanding their emotions. So those are really important things to consider. It's very clear that a person with autism's relationship to food can be difficult, painful, anxiety-inducing, and confusing. Much like how we come to terms with modifying our diet for health reasons, we can do the same without shame if it better accommodates our sensory needs. The last thing we need to deal with a threatening world is to view food as an equal threat. Think about the ways that you feel comfortable taking risks with food and ways that you can come to terms with your food preferences, no matter what the neurotypical people around you think. Modify your diet so that your nervous system doesn't fight against inflammation in the body. And if restrictive eating is causing health issues such as weight loss, weight gain, and malnutrition, seek out help from an eating disorder clinic, an occupational therapist, a nutritionist, a therapist that specializes in autism, or a therapist that specializes in supporting the nervous system, such as somatic therapy and craniosacral. Absolutely. All right. So we come to the end of this episode. So we have talked about autistic picky eaters. We talked about diets that people with autism adopt. We talked about autistic food relationships with social gatherings, the vagus nerves impact on food relationship, the relationship between autism and eating disorders, and finally some supports for autistic people on their relationship with food. All right, so our next episode is the relationship between autism and anxiety. Yeah, you can follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode. Subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, etc. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. 
And if you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. All right. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week. Until then, I am Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabellas.